Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. You go into there a normal person and you come out a honed killer, and that must have been something else to come to terms with psychologically. In moments of great heroism, we tend to cling to the stories of just one or two people. It's easier that way to celebrate and venerate the deeds of the most obvious heroes. But as is becoming ever clearer, as researchers the world over are beginning to prioritise the uncovering of stories long left in the shadows, when we celebrate the few, we leave much of the story untold. Heroes without their due. We learnt this during our Series 4 conversation with Sophie Haydock, author of The Flames, a book which shares the untold stories of Egon Schiele's muses. I wanted to allow them to paint a portrait of themselves for the first time, to kind of have the agency to create a portrait of themselves that wasn't always flattering. In her book, Mission France, The True History of the Women of SOE, Dr Kate Vigers is doing just that, lending a voice to the women that history forgot. I'm pleased to say she's my guest today. Chapter 1. Hidden Strings. The Special Operations Executive, or SOE, was formed in 1940 with the aim of coordinating resistance work overseas. The organisation's F section sent more than 400 agents into France. But while some are widely known, others have had their stories largely overlooked. 39 of the agents were women and Kate has been on a mission to uncover and tell their stories to give them the recognition they deserve. And it is utterly fascinating. This is a topic that Kate's lived with for a long time. These stories formed part of her thesis. So why is she so passionate about giving a voice to each and every one of these women? I wanted to give a voice to everybody because I feel that everybody made the same decisions when they went into training. They made the same decision to go into France to do this kind of work. Nobody knew, of course, how it was going to pan out. And my favourite ever quote is they were ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And it just sums it up for me. And of course, there are the famous ones we know about, the George Cross recipients, the ones who then became the subjects of films later on. And it's understandable why that happened. But there were a few others, quite a few others behind the scenes who uh, also needed their stories to be told. And also, as you probably saw in the book, you know, some of them weren't necessarily that good. Some of them made mistakes. And I just wanted to give it a very human voice. These are they're just people. And, you know, they make mistakes. Things happen and amazing things happen as well. And of course, you've got these terrible sacrifices that were made. And I just got a little bit frustrated that not all of their stories were out there, possibly in the way I would have liked to have heard them when I started on this subject. There's quite a lot of anxiety as a reader, because every time you introduced me to one of these operatives, I have absolutely no idea because I... I kind of didn't want to read the introduction with code names and and how long they lasted. So every time you introduce me to someone, I have no idea whether they spend the rest of the war quite comfortably working undercover or they don't even survive the parachute jump, right? It's 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 extraordinary, isn't it, how 
their stories are all so radically different, but I'm, I'm going, Oh God, I don't know how much time I, I, how much should I invest in this person? Because I know either they survive and, and, and amazing things happen to them or they don't survive and I'll feel terrible for them. I mean, that's, it's an extraordinary, it's, the scope is so different, isn't it? It is. And it's, uh, that's what makes it so incredible. That's a really interesting way of putting it. You just don't know how much how much emotion to invest in them and of course you know these are real people they're real stories and that's what makes it so different you're not just reading a work of fiction where you know you might get tugged along but at the end of the day you know it's not real these are real people who did these things and I kind of uh, wanted to make their their introductions the way you got to know them to make them quite personable and you understand uh, you know there's one of them who grew up on the beaches in France and had this amazing childhood you've got poor old Vera Lee who was orphaned and then suddenly went from this rags to riches existence and like you say, you you just don't know what's what is around the corner. Of course, I did when I wrote it. And I actually wrote the last chapters first because I wanted to get that bit out of the way so I could go back and celebrate their lives, not be so um, caught up, really, in the awful fates that some of them had. Yeah, you, you forget almost that because I, I think I understand the Second World War, to a you know, to a to a certain degree. Obviously, I studied it. You you grow up uh, around it in this country. It's a huge part of our education. But actually, when you sit back and you reflect on it, th- there's so much that we don't know, and there's so much that we have to thank these incredible women and indeed everyone involved in F section for what happened. Because I'm not exaggerating here. Without them, the course of the war could have been very different, couldn't it? Yeah, I completely agree. I, the course of the war w- would have been hugely different without SOE. Um, we we talk a lot about D-Day and, you know, the, the Allied forces arriving on the beaches of Normandy. I think one of the things we don't tend to recognise, and I try to give this a bit of a redressing in the book, is the work of the resistance led and aided by SOE in preparing the interior because if they hadn't blown up all those railway lines, cut all the telecommunications lines, for example, the Germans would have just got in their trains and gone, right, lads, we're off to Normandy. But the resistance and the SOE were there to stop them. And they didn't make it down as quickly as they could. And I really, truly believe that SOE had a huge part in the success of D-Day. But the stories that we tend to hear, and rightly so, are those incredibly brave soldiers landing on the beach or paragliding in. But these women were essential to that. They were the ones on the wireless set sending the messages, getting the information back in from London to prepare all of this. Every single person really had a role and they all fitted together in this sort of jigsaw that made these things happen. You introduce us and you spend um, a considerable amount of time helping us to understand the apparatus of F-section and what Morris Buckmaster introduced and, and had put in place I wondered and I couldn't escape this sensation I wondered how widely known was what F section was doing with these operatives and and did it know what it was approving because there's a quote really early on in in one of the opening pages you reference a war from without and a war from within and the war from within essentially needs civilians in order to make it work not just civilians but female civilians at the highest level was it widely known what people were approving 
That's a really good question. I don't think they did know exactly what it is that they were approving. I think SF section and SOE itself was uh, an autonomous body, sort of had its own leaders and everything. And people always refer to SOE as Churchill's sort of secret army. Well, yes, you know, his signature is on the letter and he said set Europe ablaze. But I spent months and months trying to find out how it came about that women were recruited. Where's that letter? Where's that elusive document? And I came to the conclusion there isn't one. I just, if there is, it's in the bowels of the National Archives with a you know, three-headed dog guarding it because I couldn't find it. And all I could find was this conversation between Selwyn Jepson, the F-section recruiting officer, and Churchill. And Churchill says to Jepson, I hear you're going to recruit women. And Jepson says yes. And Churchill says, good luck. It's, and that's, that's it's, it. Off you go. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, and I mean, of course, there, there were discussions within the war office but it's really when you look at documentation from after the war. So you've got Dame Irene Ward, who was an MP, and she said, if we had known, you know, in hindsight, if we had known what we were approving, we would never have said yes, because she then sort of spearheaded the campaign to get the SOE archives released and into the official history by, by um, MRD Foot. Uh, so I know I don't think they realise the gravity of what it was, but then we never know how war is going to pan out, do we? We assume it's going to be like the last war we had and... I mean, the two world wars couldn't be more different if they tried. And then, you know, compare the First World War to the Boer War. Things change. Things move on because you have to react to what is going on on the ground. So using women seemed a very obvious thing to do. But even then, there's only 39. You know, we're not talking thousands of women parachuting into France with their bicycles and their suitcases. There's still a very small number. It's just it's the largest number of women we have within SOE within one section. Chapter Two, A Needle in a Haystack. There are three parts to this story. The missions themselves, of course, but also the recruitment and training processes. The war was fought by ordinary people. We think of well-trained soldiers, commanders, heads of state, but we forget that for many of these people, before war broke out, their place in the world was so very different. War led them on a path they could never have predicted and may never even have wanted. Finding agents then was tough. But while there were clear lines of communication you could follow in the recruitment of men, scouting out willing and effective female participants was not so easy. Not in the 1940s, anyway. Where do you even begin to look? Who do you ask? It was far from an exact science. That's exactly it. There's no science to it at all. Of course, you can't just put an advert in the Times. You know, when they were recruiting for Bletchley, they put in the, the crosswords and you sent those in. And, you know, if you were good enough, they would then approach you. You can't release something in the Times, you know, secret agents wanted inquire within. So they had to look and there were certain groups that made obvious choices I think perhaps the most obvious were those who had already been in the resistance or been on escape lines and had come back to England themselves. So they would come back. There was an interrogation centre in London that MI5 would uh, just sort of talk to all foreign nationals coming in to get information. Um, So some of them, Andre Burrell, for example, had worked on the escape line and came back herself when she was blown, when, when she was known by the Gestapo. And then you've got people like Nancy Wake, who'd escaped back to England, and her resistance career is already 
sort of preceding her, if you like, people knew about it. Uh, and there's no doubt she told them as well. Um, <laughs> if I get Nancy right, she seemed to be very flamboyant and open about these things. But then you get just pure accidents. Um, Peggy Knight was at a party and she knocked a book off a table, picked it up. It was in French and she just started flicking through it, reading bits of it, and she was overheard. And before she knew it, um, she was invited for interview. So, you know, the, the methods of recruitment are as varied as the women are themselves. The only real prerequisites are speak French, look French and have some patriotism about you. And you talk about the variety. What staggered me, Kate, was these are only 39 women. It's not a huge number, but the sheer variety of reasons for why these people wanted to do this. I mean, you almost get 39, you know, different reasons. There were so many compelling reasons. It was either they'd lost someone in the war or, you know, they felt that they owed it to their children. They, they, they wanted to be able to look their children in, in the eye and say, you know, I, I did this. And, and for others, quite naturally, sheer escapism and, and perhaps the thrill of doing it. But did that surprise you? How many reasons there were for why people wanted to sign up? Yes, absolutely. And for some of them as well, their families didn't really understand it. They, you know, after the war, when they found out what they'd done, they're like, sorry, they did what? You know, they never did, gave any inkling to their own parents, for example. Um, Yolanda Beekman's uh, motives were idealism and good of the cause. And her own mother said, had no idea that, you know, she felt that strongly about it. And yeah, and it was interesting. And I love the fact that some of them, like Pearl Witherington, oh, I was bored. I wanted something right. better to do. And SOE gave me that opportunity not to sit behind a desk for the rest of the war. Uh, but like you say, um, good of the cause. One of them, her husband, Yvonne Cormo's husband, had been killed in the Blitz when he was at home uh, recuperating from an injury. And she just said, well, I want to pick up where he's left off. But yeah, I find the motives fascinating because no doubt you sat there and thought, would I do this? And I sit there every day and think, would I do this? And I nearly always come back with no. <laughs> I'm happy to write about them and learn about them. But I don't think you'd have caught me dangling from the end of a parachute over occupied France. No, and the the, the age range is extraordinary. You, you reference Sonia, who's 19, and Mary Therese, who's 51, I think, mm -hmm. being, you know, the ages of, of the youngest and, and, and the eldest. I mean, 19, it barely seems enough time to be alive to work out, you know, what's good and bad about the world. And, and I could imagine someone at the age of 19, that being, you know, a real thrill and an adventure. But by the time you're 51 and married Teresa's age, you, you probably have worked out that this isn't necessarily something that you want to be involved with, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think life lessons bring a lot. Of course, most people involved in the Second World War were remarkably young by our standards. You know, your average age of soldiers is late teens, early 20s. So I suppose everyone was kind of being channeled in that direction of doing something. But you're right. I mean, 51, I, I can't imagine waking up and thinking, oh, do you know what? I think I'll do this really rigorous training, <laughs> uh, go into occupied territory and risk everything, literally risking everything for something that you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So, yeah, the age the age range is phenomenal. And it's, it's really interesting also how they coped with the situations they were put into. The training process for this post-recruitment, I, I think I was a bit blasé about going into those chapters because I didn't really have any sense as to what sort of training might be provided. But then it very quickly becomes obvious. These people have to get to France somehow. And the easiest way to get them there is to throw them out of a plane. 
with a parachute. So the training program that had a real impact on me because it it's really varied, isn't it? That they were being taught many, many things, not least close combat, you know, how to kill someone with a mm. with a knife that had been especially designed for them. It's pretty hair-raising stuff, isn't it? What they had to go through just to get to France. Yeah, the training was intense and it changes throughout the war as well. So what people would have been doing in 42 would be different from what they were doing in 44. But some of the things that they had to do, uh, once you've got through the preliminary course, which was mainly to sort of weed out unsuitable recruits rather than have people finally honed and ready to go. I think it's once you get to the paramilitary training in Scotland, you suddenly realise what these people put themselves in for. I visited Scotland a few weeks ago and finally saw the training schools for myself. And I tried to do one of the hikes. <laughs> I turned around after two hours and just went, really? I'm not doing it. This is ridiculous. It's dangerous. You know, just proves again <laughs> that I couldn't do it. But, you know, the hikes, the physical training, living off the land. But the close combat and silent killing was a brand new type of warfare anyway, introduced by Fairburn and Sykes. And there's some really interesting accounts that some of the women really came into their own with it. But others, you know, found it very, very strange. And, and it is, you know, you're learning to use your bare hands and your knees against an opponent. And several agents said it's not how hard you hit them, it's where you hit them. Even Pearl said that to me when I interviewed her and she was in her late 80s. And I thought, I believe you. I really believe you could take me down right now. So they were, they were taught to have confidence in themselves. And even if they were more petite or lighter than their opponent, they would have the confidence to go in there and to do it. But a lot of them found it a very, very strange experience. And you go into there a normal person and you come out a honed killer. And that must have been something else, really, to, to come to terms with that um, psychologically. Absolutely. It, it did make me, the, the quote about it's not how hard you hit, it's where you hit, it sort of brought into stark perspective some of the advantages that female operatives might have over male. You talk in the book about the fact that males are often much more comfortable as a group or in a team, whereas females tend to have the capacity to endure more solitude and more time alone. Are there things about females and, and the way that females are built and, and the way they think? Are there things about females that you think were advantages for these operatives that might not have been true for male operatives? Yeah, what you've just said is um, a, a quote from Jepson, who, who very much believed that women uh, had the capacity to work alone. He said they had a cool and lonely courage. I'm not quite sure where he got that from but he's right in in the respect that women can you know they if they need to buckle down and do things by themselves they will and certainly in the 40s uh, and during the war you know you've got women whose husbands have probably gone away to war and they've been managing by themselves they've had to become self-sufficient and maybe they thought women had this sort of thought process that is different I guess once you get a man into um a war situation or a situation where it's one-on-one, -on -one, the sort of machismo does kick in. And it's it's undeniable, really, that men will probably enter into the fray more readily than women will. And so it's not really part of a woman's psyche. Pearl summed it up very nicely. She said, it's my job to give, give life, not take it away. So maybe they'll think around a situation rather than just launching in with fists and whatever else it is that they've got. They also felt that women were in a more advantageous position because they were used to doing boring and monotonous jobs. And, and they're not wrong. You know, they said women would make good wireless operators because they're used to focusing 
and being able to do this monotonous work day after day. So it's an interesting concept. Uh, and I, I suppose it's a discussion that still goes on in the modern army today. Uh, a lot of soldiers don't necessarily want women on the front line because they then feel they've got to protect them. Whereas if it's just a group of men, you know, it's it's each one for themselves because that has been war throughout the century. So introducing women into it must have been quite a an unusual thing and something that took a lot of thought and preparation. I think anybody that has the bravery to jump out of a hot air balloon and parachute <laughs> to the ground probably doesn't need looking after right you know no. it's just the what they what they had to demonstrate in terms of their preparedness to do these acts it, it just tells you so much and you immediately then feel wow these women could you know they could go on to change the entire course of the war and yet I turn the page and I have no idea where they're going to you know they, they might not make it to France you know it's really yeah. it's just so compelling and when you talk about the, the missions, I was fascinated by the resistance and by the, all of the names and addresses that they had to memorize because these were people and contacts mm -hmm. they would meet up with. I found some of the stuff just really eye-opening. For example, the use of brothels as centers of resistance and of information. And you you mentioned there's a doctor, doctor is it Rosset or Rosset that, so, you, yeah, that yeah. you mentioned who had his own very unique form of sabotage in that he was giving clean bills of health to prostitutes that he knew didn't have clean bills of health so that they could potentially, I, 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 I haven't imagined this, they could potentially go on to infect German soldiers. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> what a guy. You have to feel sorry for the women <laughs> that right. continue to live with these venereal diseases. But yeah, his um, his aim was to try and, uh, you know, spread infection as much as possible. And of course, it's an, it's an age-old problem you know soldiers are encouraged to go to, to brothels or the poof as they call them and yeah they they would get infected and of course it's a it's an old adage isn't it you need to get somebody injured or ill rather than kill them because of the the infrastructure then and the money and the effort taken to get them better and these poor guys probably ended up getting sent to the eastern front as a result of catching something like that because they should have known better type thing Operation Barbarossa is, you know, entirely <laughs> staffed with people with venereal disease. Yes, possibly. <laughs> That's a thought. <laughs> There's a character, Kate. She's not an operative. She's not one of the 39. But I'm thinking of Vera Atkins, who is Morris Buckmaster's assistant. She is a real central character in the lives of these women, isn't she? She's one of the, she's one of the last people that they see before... They're sent um, behind enemy lines. She does all of the checks on them to make sure that they're not carrying anything that could identify them um, when they land. But she's a real source of comfort and confidence for, for many of these women, isn't she? She is. And I think that was really important that they had a woman in that role. And she was a confidant. She would, if she felt an agent was perhaps nervous or there was something about them that needed tending, you should take them out for lunch or just be that person that they could talk to. She was the one who helped them write their wills before they left or encouraged them if they wanted to write letters home that she could then post at intervals because, of course, their families didn't know where they were going. So maybe they would say they were going to be an ambulance driver in Scotland or something. And, and she would make sure that they stayed in touch. And she was there at the airfields, Thamesford, Tangmere, wherever it was, 
checking their pockets, making sure that they weren't taking anything with them and probably make, making them make heartbreaking decisions. You know, actually don't take that photo of your fiance or your children. You need to leave that with me now for safekeeping. That must have been very, very difficult for these women just to let go of that last little bit of home, really. But she was there to encourage them and, and support them. And making her sound like she was a real sort of lovely, lovely, gentle person. The the um, I never met her, but I have heard that you did not mess with Vera Atkins and she would give you her opinion, whether you asked for it or not. But it must have been a source of great comfort to people to know that she was there. And she was looking after them even when they were out in the field as well. I couldn't find the quote, so I never put it in the book. But when Mary Herbert had the baby, I am sure I read somewhere that Vera knitted some booties and sent them out in the next parachute drop. But I never found the actual direct quote, so I wasn't allowed to put it in. But she was constantly thinking of them. Chapter three, a knock on the door. While some of these agents spent years on their missions, some missions lasted just a few hours. Some survived, others were murdered, and alongside the inherent danger that accompanies a task like this came a huge amount of betrayal. Many of them were captured because they were betrayed by locals, neighbours, members of the resistance who turned, or even undercover operatives from the other side. They lived their lives under constant threat, knowing that each and every day the next knock on the door could well be the Gestapo coming to collect them. Yeah, that's something I always think about, um, you know, that next knock on the door. You don't know who it is. You know, France was rife with collaborators. They People were shopping each other for all sorts of things. There's a, a wonderful book called Sweet Francaise, uh, which is written by a lady. She ended up in Auschwitz, actually. It's become a film as well. And there's this Gestapo officer saying, I am just swamped with letters from neighbours picking on each other because they want each other's flat or they want that garden or, you know, they're just shopping each other for all sorts of things. And you just didn't know if somebody was in support of the Nazis or if they were supporting the resistance. And like I say, people turned as well. Money was a huge influence. And if there was a price on somebody's head, Nouriniak Khan, I think, had the price of 100,000 francs on her head. And she was betrayed for a tenth of what they were asking for her. So people you know, were prepared to hand people over. And I don't think they really... Either they didn't know or they didn't care about what was going to happen once these people were in Gestapo hands it would it must have been absolutely terrifying and i think the worst thing as well is just setting up your wireless set and not knowing who's listening in or how close they are the book left me reflecting on two broad points we'll come back to the first one but the first one is could i have done it and no is the very short answer to that question but it also made me reflect on the fragility of peace and what's happening now in Ukraine, mm -hmm. and in particular, photographs and, and video footage of ordinary people being heavily armed and volunteering to go and fight on the front line. You know, major sportsmen and women returning to their homeland to to fight, mm -hmm. and we should never forget how fragile the world can be because these were these these women were ordinary women seeing extraordinary things it can turn so quickly can't it we 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 think we live in a in a world that is at peace or we would like to live in a world that that is at peace but you know the i've often said that you know the churchill said it himself the further the further backwards you look the further forwards you can mm -hmm. see and and when when i think about 
these women and what they did. And I think, is it really any different to what's happening or what's probably happening now in, in the Donbass region, for example? It's probably not. It's probably just the technology that's moved on, whereas conflict and war is a constant in our lives, which is a terrible thing that we live through. But, you know, I, I could imagine that there are the modern incarnations of these 39 women doing exactly the same thing in Ukraine right now. You get that sense, don't you? You do, you really do. I think once your life, your family and your country are under threat, uh, it doesn't take much for that spark inside you to, to come back up and to defend your country. And you're right, you know, watching the footage, certainly in the early days of the invasion of Ukraine, and you're like, that that's a mother and father putting on combat, probably never held a gun, and they're waving goodbye to their children and trying to send them to a safer place. And they are, yeah, they're basically resisting. They are fighting back. And I will put money on the fact that there are people out there with false propaganda, just like there were. There'll be sabotage. There'll be resistors, you know, working undercover, trying to, you know, to fight back. And you you hear the word resistance a lot on the news now, don't you? The um, In those steelworks where there were these pockets of resistance holding out. And you just think, my God, it's almost like, you know, these people who are holding themselves up in cellars or, you know, the guys from Operation Anthropoid who hold themselves up in a church in Prague for a few days. It's the same thing, but it's happening all over again. So you're right. Peace is very fragile. And I remember saying years ago, I don't think that modern society had it in it to resist, but I've been proved wrong in Ukraine for sure. And people from here making massive efforts to go out to the war zones, even if it's just to take a, a lorry full of food or some clothing. How wonderful that we now have that option, because, of course, in the Second World War, everybody was fighting. And let's just hope to God that, you know, doesn't become the case. Well, on the subject of everybody fighting, I, as I said, have reflected on my own capacity to do what these women did. Now, when you're a reader of fiction, I mean, one of the key things for writers of fiction is that audiences and readers love characters who make decisions we disagree with, right? That, that really is the heart of conflict and the heart of story and fiction. These were real people doing things that I know for a fact I, I couldn't do. And I've tried to put as many obstacles in the way of me signing up to do what they did as possible. So my eyesight isn't as good as it needs to be. You know, I don't speak French, you know, nearly well enough. I, I would never, I would never be able to pass myself off convincingly as as French or as local but you think well actually you know if needs must then you could you could mm -hmm. learn you know French that we could don't worry about your eyesight you know we've got contact lenses or whatever it is but at the heart of it I think is just this base fear and cowardice of doing voluntarily you know you, you put a gun to my head I have no idea what I'm capable of but mm -hmm. if you give me the option I'm probably going to opt in fact not probably I'm definitely going to opt out this i know has become a very personal topic for uk hasn't it you've asked yourself this question many many times and, and and have you can have you concluded either way or does it change on how brave you're feeling day to day i'd love to say I, I would do it but of course we've got the gift of hindsight that they didn't and i you know i just know that i wouldn't have been able to stand the interrogation you know you've only got to question me to a point and i probably will actually get you know what or trying to remember what you've said. I know I've got the capacity for the cover stories and things like that. I've got a frighteningly good memory. 
So I think I could do that. But like you, my French is almost non-existent. So I've always used that as my excuse that um, I just don't have the language skills. But I don't think you can make it as, as easy as that. I think it's what's in your mind. And I think, you know, would I stand up? Would I be able to to make those decisions knowing what might happen? Uh, and I'd like to think I would be brave enough but I'm just not convinced. I, I, I flip backwards and forwards. You, I certainly wouldn't have parachuted. You'd have taken me in by Lysander, I'm afraid. There's just no way you'd get me jumping out of a plane. The training does appeal to me. The training sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, and they did do a television program fairly recently, four or five years ago, where they put normal civilians through the training. And it was interesting to see how they coped with it. But of course, at the end of that, they never had the real fear of going in uh, into occupied territory and I think the uncertainty would just be too much. It would prey on you. And I think the exhaustion would get you very quickly. Many of the women thrive during training, didn't they? They they really enjoyed the physical and mental stimulus of, of, of the training programme. Yeah, some of them absolutely loved it. Yvonne Rudelar, who I think was uh, mid-40s, they said that years just dropped from her shoulders. The more PT she did, uh, you know, she just absolutely loved it. And some of them really enjoy things like the firearms training because it's fun. Uh, at the end of the day, oh, it's it's a good laugh. So, yeah, some of them really, really thrived. They got fit. They got healthy. Uh, they had a purpose in life, which is probably a really big thing, because, of course, there was war work you could undertake. But prior to the war, women's roles were very confused, really, especially sort of in the wake of the First World War, where everybody had worked and then just been sent home. I think people were starting to find a purpose to their lives aside from running the family home or having children. There was something new to it, which must have given them a real purpose in what they were doing. The research and the time that you've spent on this is, is clear. It screams through the, the entire book that the level of knowledge and, and time and effort that you've put into this is, is, is incredible, Kate. It really is. Do you think that this story or, or these women, do you think there is more evidence to uncover or do you think we're pretty much at the limits now of what the remaining and available source material can tell us or does it still have the capacity to surprise us further down the line? I think it does have the capacity to surprise us but I don't know how much more there is out there. I mean I was literally sent a document yesterday which was uh, detailed of Von Rudelar's injuries. She was um, in a shootout basically and then there's a German document I've just been sent that details her injuries. And, and that's fascinating because I've always wondered how she survived, uh, you know, a gunshot to the head. I mean, unfortunately, she expired in the concentration camps. But I think there's stuff out there. But of course, we don't have the primary sources anymore. We have one agent who's still alive. She's 101 now and she lives in New Zealand. That's Phyllis Latour. Of course, there are families who have got their stories to be told, but it's really the official archives that hold the information that you need, really. A lot of them were destroyed anyway after the war. And of course, things become convoluted as time goes on. So my job was to unpick all of that as well and to dig down and try and find the truth. I would love to say that there, there will be a story that will leap out and surprise us all, but we know the 39 who were part of F section. I very often get people contacting me thinking Granny might have been in F section. I say, you know, I'm really sorry, but we, we have the... the finite list of who was there but that's not to say other people weren't linked to SOE that there might be other stories of resistors who became linked to SOE out in France or the stories of people back here who maybe did their training and failed but took on another role there's still lots to be told I'm pretty sure of that. 
Well, Mission France, the true history of the women of SOE is an extraordinary accomplishment. Dr. Kate Vigers, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much and thank you for your kind words. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Dr. Kate Vigers for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? We often focus on the heroes and villains of our stories. But who are the puppet masters pulling the strings? Is there someone whose presence empowers and enables your hero? Or a villain even more elusive and deadly than the one your audience has come to know? Often, it's the overlooked whose stories shine the brightest. Don't let a cast of just a few hog the limelight. Pearl might be 80, but she could definitely kick your butt. It's not about how hard you hit, it's where you hit them. Toy with the concept of a person whose power belies their appearance. Surprise your audience. Use the threat of that next knock on the door in your writing. It can be a powerful tool to build suspense and anxiety. And finally, every person and every character has their own motivations. Sometimes their reasons why baffle and surprise even those closest to them. Think about what your character might do when left with no choice. How might they diverge from what's expected of them? How might their personality fundamentally change? Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Get in touch with me directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. And no, there's no way I could have been in F section. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.